Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for this Lord's Day morning. We thank You that we, Your people, can gather together and worship You. And we thank You for this special class where we can look to Your Word and to better understand the themes, the topics, the doctrines that You teach within this book of wisdom. Of course, we come to You dependent for we are dependent upon Your Holy Spirit to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. And so we ask that You would give us wisdom and discernment as we seek to know Your will as You have revealed it here within this book. And we pray that You'd guide us, that You would direct us, that we would be edified, and that You would be glorified through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so just a really, really quick uh, overview, really quick summary. Um, if you've been here, you, you know where we are up to this point. If you've not been here, uh, I did confirm that we have the previous classes on this topic up on our YouTube channel, so you can go back to that um, and, uh, and catch up if you need to. But what we're looking at is we're looking at the topics of justice and righteousness as they are uh, taught to us in the book of Proverbs. Uh, we could even say that this is a, a study on the Proverbs teaching or justice and righteousness according to the Proverbs. And uh, we looked at how God's justice is witnessed within the world. And so uh, just a quick flyover, we saw that God's justice is revealed in this world through civil authority. We saw that God's justice is revealed in this world through, quote, chance, end quote. We saw that God's justice is revealed through civil judgment and punishment. We saw that God's justice is revealed in impartiality, as well as protecting the helpless, as well as righteous and just living. And so all of that brought us up to uh, where we are today, and so the question is, for, our, uh, for the teaching and for our discussion today, if that's how we see justice and righteousness revealed and taught within the Proverbs, then let's look at the other side of this. What are the characteristics of injustice? What are the characteristics of injustice? And I'm going to start with this first point, uh, and we're going to look at, and should be on your handout, Proverbs 18.5. And that is the topic of partiality and deprivation. Partiality and deprivation. And you'll see why I've joined those two topics together as we look at this first proverb. Proverbs 18.5 It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. It is not good to be partial to the wicked or to deprive the righteous of justice. And so, in order to look at this proverb together, I've just taken both of those topics, pulled them together in this first characteristic of injustice. Now, before we talk about part, what partiality is, just a little bit of help here with the Hebrew, as is translated in English here. To be partial, as it's translated, literally means to raise the face to raise the face, the, the countenance, uh, so to speak, uh, of something. And so the, the face is being raised, the countenance is being uh, reflected in this sense. It is, in other words, we would say uh, in our vernacular, it is to give credence to something. It is to give credence to something that, um, 
that we are essentially acknowledging uh, as to be valid. Uh, so, with that being said, what is impartiality? Or maybe we should ask the question in the proverb, it says it is not good to be partial to the wicked. What does that mean? What does it mean to be partial? And again, because it can be translated to give credence to, what does it mean to be uh, partial or to give credence to the wicked? What's that? All right, to give favor to, to show favor to or to favor someone. That's right. What else? So keep in mind, the implication is, is that we're talking about the wicked. It is that how the, the, the sage of the Proverbs will use a term that in real life we know to be relative, but within the proverb it will be used as an absolute. And so this is a person who is characterized as wicked, a person of wickedness, and so to give credence to or to show favor to uh, someone who is wicked is to do what? Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, if, so we use this as an example in a court case. Let's say that, that there is a court case that comes before a judge, and, and that judge uh, decides to rule in favor of his political bias or his political leanings or his political party as opposed to justice. And let's say that, that his bias toward that political favoritism uh, is towards someone who is in the wrong. Now, by doing that, by giving credence to that, that person, what do we learn about that judge? He's an unjust judge. Now, again, remember, in the Proverbs, the sage is always delivering to us, or not always, is typically delivering to us absolutes. We know that in reality that a, a bad person can do good things, a good person can do bad things, a judge is not always unjust, etc., etc. So we know this to be the case, but in general, what we learn here uh, about this partiality, it is not good. Well, it's not good for whom to sh show partiality to the wicked? To us, whether we're the judge or whether we are just the innocent bystander. The point is that our God is a just God. Our God desires that we be a just people. I think about Micah 6, 8, an often quoted verse, often under, misunderstood, is we are to love what? We are to love justice as God loves justice. To, be, to show partiality to the wicked to, is not good. That's, of course, an, an, an understatement. The second part of that is to deprive the righteous. Now, so see what the, the sage is doing here. This is its typical poetic fashion. He's telling us in the absolute sense of the wicked and the absolute sense of the righteous, we should not show partiality to the wicked. We should not do what with the righteous? Deprive them of justice. Now, I go, I go back to, again to my, my example of, of the judge who decides that he's not going to rule justly in considering the matter of the case, but instead he's going to lean in his political favor or his biases or whatever. And let's say that he leans in the direction of the wicked because it's how he wants to lean. 
It tells us a lot about the judge, but the converse of that is true as well, right? If, if a judge goes against his biases, goes against what his political leaning, goes against what he favors and rules justly, what do we learn about that judge? He's a good judge. He's a man of integrity or a woman of integrity. It's a person that we know that favors right justice as God favors justice. And again, now move that out of the courtroom to us, is that we should be careful in our own lives. What we're being taught here is to avoid partiality and stand up for what's right. To stand up for what's right. Commentators tell us that the other Proverbs, which I have listed for you here in your handout, Proverbs 24, 23 through 24, Proverbs 28, 21, uh, you can look those up later, but the implication is that a bribe is involved. Uh, and so the idea that, that a judge or, uh, in this case, those of, uh, could be us, that we could be bribed to show partiality to the wicked or vice versa. But whatever the case is, whether there's the idea of the bribe or whether there's the idea of uh, just simply moral or ethical grounds, that we are to not show partiality. I've added here, oh, actually, you know what? I, let me read to you. This is interesting. Uh, Proverbs 28, 21. Do I have that on your handout? I don't, do you? Okay, let me read that to you. To show partiality is not good, but for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. To show partiality is not good. So that's the first half of the verse that we have. Then it says, for a piece of bread, a man will do wrong. What, what does that mean? That, that sounds to us like an idiomatic expression, doesn't it? What does it mean that for a piece of bread a man will do wrong? He may do something that, that, that's wicked, right? I mean, we think about this, this is just a, a fans of classic literature. There's, there's one novel that I'm thinking of, a classic French novel that's based on this, whole, this one concept, and then the whole novel's written about this one piece of bread. Remember what it is? Yeah, Les Miserables. Yeah, Victor Hugo's Les Miserables. Everything's built on stealing the bread, and everything explodes uh, for Jean Valjean after that. Uh, from that piece of bread onward, right? Well, the idea is, not in that novel, but in this proverb, the idea is, is that imagine if the bribe is stronger. Imagine if the bribe is more influential. The point is, is that we should be on guard, everyone should be on guard, that we are not swayed by that which is enticing to us. Because if a man will steal for a piece of bread, will do wrong for a piece of bread, so certainly we might if we are tempted. And then I'll go ahead and read the other proverb uh, that I referenced here, Proverb 24, 23, and I'm going to read all the way through 26 to give context. It says, These also are sayings of the wise, Partiality in judging is not good. Whoever says to the wicked, you are in the right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight and a good blessing will come upon them. Whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. And I, I included that in, in your, your handout, the reference there, uh, but you could add to that, verses 25 and 26, what does it mean that an honest answer 
is like kissing the lips, or he whoever gives an honest answer kisses the lips. What does that mean? Is there anything more intimate than kissing someone on the lips, at least in a social setting? No. It's a very intimate, but it's also someone that you trust, trustworthy person, you've allowed them. As I, 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 I like to say, and we all have it, you know, we, we all have these, what do you call it, personal space, boundaries, yeah, mine's like six feet more than everybody else's. You know, I don't let very many people in my, my, my boundaries. And then other people in other cultures, you, you know, you'll, you'll see them and they'll be like this close talking to one another. Um, but, but the idea is, is if I let someone into my personal space and, and, and we, we kiss on the lips, which I promise to do to no one here but my wife, that's a sign of, of intimacy. It's a, it's a sign of trusting. And the idea is, is that honesty, or in this case in the topic of that which is just, an honest answer given in the sense of justice, is in fact something that is favorable, intimate, loving, kind, etc. All right, so uh, partiality and deprivation is... The first characteristic of injustice. Secondly, theft by deceit. Theft by deceit. Look at Proverbs twenty-two twenty-eight with me. Do not move the ancient landmark that your fathers have set. All right. Now, <laughs> there are certain Proverbs that uh, sound a bit strange. Uh, what does this mean? What, what is an ancient landmark? All right, so this is so before I became a pastor, everybody knows for two decades I was in the real estate business. And so for real estate people, we could just kind of nerd out on little bitty things like this because it's pretty fascinating. So believe it or not, there were not satellite imagery shot during this era, right? Boundaries for private property were determined by landmarks. And so there would be something, and oftentimes it could have been a stone or a, or a tree. Uh, we know even by the layout, in fact, this last week I was on the Rio Grande River uh, fly fishing for trout, and I was standing in this gorge that was the result of tectonic activity. Uh, it's a very fascinating gorge. If you've ever been in it, I'm, I'm looking up, and it doesn't look like anything else in, like in Colorado. It's a very unique geography. And, uh, but I learned that I was standing on what... Uh, 150 years ago was the United States. Right across the river from me was what was at that time Mexico. And, and so we were separated by this river. Well, that river was a natural landmark. Now, you can't move a river, or you, at least in this area, you, you couldn't necessarily uh, move a river, but you could move a stone. And so if I want to steal part of your property, then what will I do? I just gained four feet of property by virtue of moving that stone. And if I do it slowly and subtly over time, well, are your kids going to know that I've taken property away from you? So forth and so on. And the, the general idea is that it's not just stealing, it's stealing by deceit. It's theft by deceit. And so, as it says here, 
the ancient landmark that your fathers have set, meaning that, and especially if you know your Old Testament law and you know when Israel moved into the promised land and you know that during that time the, the boundaries would have been set for the different families and, and that would carry on from generation to generation. Uh, see also, for example, Ruth and how property would have been held in trust and so forth. Well, all of that becomes, it becomes more complex when all of a sudden there is a subtle theft involved in, in that property. Well, with that being the case, what is the general idea of do not move the ancient landmarks that your fathers have set? So we're not talking about accident here. We're not talking about an error in marking. What are we talking about? First of all, we're talking about intention. There's the intention for theft, and that intention is to deceive someone else, to take what someone else has. Proverbs 23, 10, and 11 elaborates on this. Do not move an ancient landmark, so we've got that, or enter the fields of the fatherless. For their Redeemer is strong, He will plead their cause against you. So in that point, enter the fields of the fatherless means that you are going into property where someone's father, so that we're thinking about minors here, or the vulnerable. You could think about, for example, orphans, uh, or whatever the case is, but it's still their property by right, by heritage. And to go into that field means what? You're going in there to use it. So again, Ruth is a great example here. When, when Ruth goes to glean, she is in Boaz's property. Does she have right to be in that property? Well, she does in the sense that, that she is seemingly impoverished and she can glean on the edges. But what does Boaz do for Ruth? That's right. He says, come to me. I've told my men to leave you alone, to, to not bother you, and I want you to come away from the edges. I want you to come in, and I want you to glean with the other women who are working uh, for him and to be safe in that. Uh, but the general idea is, is that field is being used. It's being used for economic value, and to enter the fields of the fatherless is to go and take something that is someone else's, the implication is by deceit or from those who are helpless. And then the proverb says, For their Redeemer is strong. He will plead their cause against you. Interestingly, the ESV capitalizes the word Redeemer here. It doesn't have to be. In fact, I think it's an error to capitalize it. Because there is in the law the ability for a redeemer, in this case, Boaz, in the example of Ruth, there is someone who can legally step in and he could stand up for the vulnerable, but it could also be capital R, couldn't it? And that's the position the ESV takes in this translation, is there's a, there is our God, and He is the one who, of course, stands up for the protection of widows and orphans. Uh, but whether it is someone who is acting, acting on behalf of God or it is God in general, uh, the point here is, is that theft by deceit is an injustice. It's a characteristic of injustice. Number three, indifference. Indifference. Proverbs 24, 11 through 12. 
Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? Right, so the first of all, let's pick, the, pick up the imagery, and then I want us to talk about this. So the imagery is an, an animal being taken to the slaughterhouse, right? Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Uh, the implication here is sort of the, the idea of, of well, we, we say anthropomorphism, right? Uh, it's talking about us, but using the imagery of an animal. An animal is being taken away to death, to the slaughterhouse, uh, and, uh, and so someone must step in. Someone must stay, save, in this case, us. Now, what is the general idea of, this, of these two Proverbs? If you were to, to sum it up uh, in, on the topic of indifference, how would you explain this to someone? That's right. Sin. Yeah. Yeah, sin, 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 sin of omission. Yeah. Right. And, and we're indifferent to that and ignore it and let them go down that path. That's right. Hey, can everybody hear Rusty back there? What's that? It's in just. Yeah, yeah. And oftentimes, what's, what's, so what he, what he said was is that, that, that indifference is injustice. But we don't oftentimes think about it that way, do we? We oftentimes think of justice proactively, and we don't consider, of course, James confronts this error in our, in our mind, but nevertheless, is that we oftentimes don't think of what we don't do as something that is unjust. But the Proverbs is saying when, when you are involved, now again, this is, this is not talking about, uh, as I understand it, this is not uh, in the digital world. Okay, so I know, I know that, that, that we live in a world where we, you know, the phones and we get all angry. That was a tweeterer. I'm getting mad about a tweeterer, you know, and all that kind of stuff. Matt, I don't think that's what this is talking about, is it? Um, no, this is something that is in real life. Real life. It's happening. And you're involved. And you're associated with it. And you, here's the main point, and the commentators bring this out uh, on, this, on these two Proverbs, and it's something that is in your power to do something about. And you go, you know, uh, I choose not to get involved even though it's in my power to get involved and do something. And the pro writer of Proverbs says, that's injustice. That it is unjust for us when it is in our power to Micah 6 8, to the Hebrew translation in English is to do justice. Yeah, I mean, we like we can unpack Micah 6 8 today. It'll blow your mind what that verse actually means. It oftentimes doesn't mean as people quote it. To do justice is action. It is activity. It is our life in action, doing something proactively on behalf as the instruments and agents of God and His justice. And that to deny, to be indifferent about, 
is the reverse. It is, in fact, unjust. Well, if that's the case then, uh, and I want to close on this, how may we pursue true justice? And, and I couch the question on your handout with the word true here uh, because I do know that we live in a culture where the word justice is used. I addressed this in our first class, so I'm not going to unpack all of that. But, but I know there are all sorts of words attached to the word justice uh, that has led Uh, if we're not careful and if we get our definitions from TV instead of the Word of God, can really lead us into a wrong understanding of what true justice is. But as we discussed in that first class and as we carry over to how is it defined in the Proverbs, how do we pursue this true justice? Or we might change the question to say, how do we pursue God's justice? Is that fair enough? How do we pursue God's justice or justice as God defines it? All right, let's look at Proverbs 21.3. To do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. That is a good translation. And what I mean by that is, is look at the verb. It's the infinitive form of the verb, to do. Well, how do you do righteousness? How do you do righteousness? I thought righteousness is something that I am. I mean, we talk about Romans. We talk about the implication of righteousness by virtue of the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And so I'm righteous before God by virtue of Christ's death and resurrection. By God's grace through faith in Christ, I am counted as righteous. So how would one do righteousness? (laughs) In Proverbs 50, I mean, Psalm 51. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Yeah, that, that's right. So there is, a, there is the, the implication of, of, of action. So this is not talking about our righteous standing before God. It's talking about behavioral righteousness, that, that we are living, we are doing that which is righteous. We are doing righteousness. What would, what would be some examples of doing righteousness? Well, and I'm, yeah, yeah, responding when there's a situation, uh, standing up for the vulnerable, uh, not uh, being deceptive. Um, yeah, that's a good point. You could you're not showing partiality, uh, not depriving those that are due justice, so forth and so on. We could almost sort of backtrack our way back through this, couldn't we? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. More than that's right. Exactly. Thank you. That I, you said it better than I. It, it's it's more practice, the practice of righteousness, as opposed to the position of righteousness. We talk about being righteous by God's grace through faith in Christ. That is a positional righteousness. What the writer of Proverbs is talking about here is the practice 
of righteousness, living it out in our own lives, which we are called to do as God's children. So to do righteousness, see also what we've studied up until this point, so to speak, in the practice of it. And then what is to do justice? And why do you think that the, the sage combines these two together, uh, which you can see this three-part three study uh, that I, the, the topic was justice and righteousness, and I had this particular proverb in mind. Why does the sage combine the two? to do the practice of righteousness, to do the practice of justice. What's that? Yeah. Yeah, one, one is treating the other rightly. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. It's in, in, a, in a sense, there is this application, right? But also, we see here that it is not only doing righteous, but there is a specificity to that, that we are doing that which is, is just, that what is right, that which is good, and, and so on. So yeah, I think, I think you're right. And then it goes on to say, and here we're thinking about perhaps the example of, of Saul, and Samuel, the last part of this proverb says, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Of course, what did Samuel say to Saul? In general, obedience is better than sacrifice. But here the writer of Proverbs says the practice of righteousness, the practice of justice is better than, is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. The general teaching here is the same, isn't it? The point is, is that we're not to be a people who don't practice righteousness, don't practice justice, and then think, oh well, you know, I've been saved by grace through faith. If I'm going to live a life of grace, grace matters. Sort of like this grace-only movement that has absolutely been a plague on our denomination. You know, well, I'm all about grace, so I'll sin like hell just to show you how great grace is. I had someone say that. I'm like, like, did you cut Romans 6 out of your Bible? What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? By no means. We've died to it. How can we live any longer? You idiot! No. But really, I mean, it just astounds me in this grace-only movement how someone can live that way and divorce themselves like this. Live like a child of hell as opposed to a child of God. A child of God who is saved by grace lives what? Practicing righteousness. Practicing justice. That is what pleases God, as it says here, is acceptable to God than sacrifice. The second proverb I have here uh, for you is Proverbs 21.15. When justice is done, it is a joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. This is uh, one of those proverbs where, really, it's so obvious. You think, does no one get this? Do we actually have to be taught this by God? Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does He have to deliver this to us, that it's a joy to the righteous but terror to evildoers? Well, yes. See also the way of the world. 
Because it is often that we do see that the evildoer is not brought to justice. We often see that it is the just who are pushed down, who are persecuted. But, as it says here, when justice is done, note past tense, when we look back and we see that justice has been served, what does it do to your heart? Have you ever noticed in, in, our, in our criminal justice system, have you ever noticed that when a, and I'll, and I'll use the word brutal here, but I'm, I'm not trying to be insensitive, so please bear with me here, but when a, a brutal murder occurs and the family members who go through this horrific event and the trial eventually comes, which just seems forever in our, politi- in our criminal justice system, but it does finally come. And when that murderer is in fact found guilty, even if it is years into the future, how does the family respond? And what do they often say? We feel like we got justice. Well, that's a human response. We who are made in the image of God, we want justice. It doesn't mean that we act justly. It doesn't mean that we're not all capable of being the murderer. But what it does mean is that there is something innately within us by God's creation that desires, that has a sense of justice. And when we see it, we know it. Nobody has to come up and explain it to us. And as the, the sage says here, when we see justice done, how do we respond? With joy. Like, that's it. And when justice is served, what does it send the message to the evildoer? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, look, we live in Fort Smith, Arkansas. Let's not forget our history here. This was the hanging judge, right? This is where the outlaws, you know... Oklahomans, the outlaws <laughs> were, uh, were, were brought to... I, I probably should need to stop the Oklahoma jokes. You're like 50% of you are Oklahomans. So. <laughs> um, but but uh, the criminals were, were brought to justice. And it's so fascinating uh, to me, and I'm sure it's fascinating to you, to, to read the accounts of how many people would show up for the hanging. Wasn't it interesting? They would bring picnics to the hang. I'm like, you know, I'm concerned. I was concerned when my kids were little about seeing violence on television. Come on, sweetheart. We got a hanging to go to, you know, bring the pork chops. And, uh, but, but if, you, if, you, if you've read anything about this, and I hope you have. If you, you haven't, I know I'm boring you at this point. But psychologists have written on the phenomenon on why people were drawn to the gathered around for that. And it's the same example of the family whose loved one was murdered. It's the same thing. There is within the human heart a desire for justice. Does not mean that we, again, as I said before, doesn't mean that we always do justly, but we see it. And it also, we know that it sends a message to the evildoer. We want the evildoer to know this is what happens when you do evil. And so in general, what I'm trying to get at here and drawing from the Proverbs is that one of the ways that we pursue true justice is just pretty plain, is just live it. 
live it within our lives. It's within our power to, when the time arises, to do that which is right, and we should seek to do that which is right. The second area, and this is what I want to conclude on, is Proverbs 28.5. Evil men do not understand justice, but those who seek the Lord understand it completely. And I, and I, I may be stretching here a little bit, uh, but the general point I want to convey here is another way that we pursue true justice is we seek the Lord. And let me explain why I think this is a valid uh, answer to how do we pursue true justice. Um, so well, let's break down the proverb and then I'll explain. First of all, evil men do not understand justice. Do evil people, those who commit uh, crimes and, and so forth, do they understand justice? Yeah, so in other words, they do understand justice. It's not like they don't understand the law, but they think what? They can get away with it, or they may, may not apply to them, or so forth and so on. And we can, we can use examples, horrific examples, uh, from our own country, even within this year, to use that as an example. The idea that it's not a matter of knowledge, they do understand justice. It's a matter of they think they can get away with it. They don't think it applies to them. They think they're justified uh, in doing that which is wrong. We saw that in the storming of our own capital, right? I mean, you hear those interviews and these people are like, you know, I'm taking my country. I'm standing up for what's right. It's like, huh? I thought breaking the law was like breaking the law. I kind of think that maybe you're kind of mixed up in your noggin. Well, they are. Evil men do not understand justice. They get a psychology. They get a philosophy, and they read it to themselves, and they hear it to themselves, and it runs over and over like a tape recorder in their minds, and eventually what happens? They believe it. They really think, I'm standing up for justice by doing that which is unjust. But the other part of this, Proverbs 28.5, which is where I wanted to get to, is those who seek the Lord understand it. What's it? Justice. Those who seek the Lord understand justice completely. What does it mean to seek the Lord? And incidentally, that is a Hebrew expression that is repeated throughout the Old Testament. So it is something we ought to know, right? What does it mean to seek the Lord? To draw near. What's it mean to draw near? To hunger and thirst for righteousness, or in this case, the, the Lord or Yahweh as it translated, to hunger and thirst for, for the Lord? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a, a perspective of it. I think that, that what we're found, and this is exactly how I'd hoped that, that we would discuss this question, is what we find is it's a pretty hard question, isn't it? Because part of the issue is the answer is multifaceted. Because our God is God. And so if we were to sit down and we were to begin to list out His attributes, well, we'll, we'll fill these, these boards, these writer boards, won't we? The, the point is is that to seek the Lord is to pursue Him for who He is, 
how he has been reve- how he has revealed himself in his glory and in seeking him to have that impact us as well. If I seek the Lord, does it have a, a direct impact on my life? I mean, what does it say? You use the example of draw near to Him. But the implication is I want to draw near to Him. So to seek, that's the verb there, to seek is, it's an imperative, is I am wanting, or in this case I'm commanded to, to pursue after Him, to draw near to Him, to go after Him, and to, by doing that, to desire what He desires. And so it is a, a, almost a holistic understanding of what we are to be about in our lives. We are to be seekers of the Lord. It doesn't mean that He's hiding from us, but it means that within our lives we are pursuing Him and what is and who He is and what He has revealed to us and how are we to live by virtue of that. Now look back at the verse with me. But those who seek the Lord understand justice completely. Why do, they, why do we understand justice completely by seeking the Lord? We've experienced Him. That's right. Exactly. The point is, is that, again, you could turn this in reverse. We understand justice completely by understanding the Lord. We see what the Lord loves. And we love that. We see what the Lord hates. And we hate that. We see through the lens that God sees. And that's when we begin to understand what true justice is. Not what my neighbor says justice is. Not what television says what justice is. But when I begin to seek the Lord and I begin to understand what He says justice is. And how He sees it. Then I understand it. Then I, and what's, what's the last word there, the, the um, adverb? Then I will understand it what? Completely. I really will understand what justice is as I pursue the Lord. Because as I pursue the Lord and because He is perfectly just, I really will understand what true justice is. All right. Questions or comments as we conclude this section? Anything that jumped out at you that you'd like to add? Right. He did a good thing. That's right. Yeah. And to be clear, when I, I meant that the, the, the poet is using the animal in an anthropomorphic way, meaning to talk about people. So he's not talking about animals. He's using this imagery 
So I'm, I'm carrying the animal down to the slaughterhouse, and this is not going to be good for that animal, but transfer that into real life. We, you know, as to use uh, Isaiah's lamb was led to slaughter, you know, so the idea of, of, of uh, it's referencing us in this case as opposed to the, the actual animal. But yeah, and that, that's right. I mean, to stand up as Corey Ten Boom did and her sister and her dad, yeah, or, or Dietrich Bonhoeffer or other World War II examples, that, that's right. And, and indeed, the, the Nazis and the Holocaust were treated as animals um, led to a slaughter. Yeah, that's good. And of course, then would carry that on over to any form of injustice, uh, whether it be uh, the loss of life. We think about this, for example, in, in, the, in the case that uh, is very popular for discussion right now, the unborn child, you know, standing up for, for the, uh, the unborn child in the womb. So, all right, anything else? All right, let me, call, yes. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, Ivor Martin's sermon uh, when he was here, I think, dealt with part of that. His sermon wasn't on the countenance or the face of the Lord, uh, but uh, which is the, the countenance is a form of that same metaphor. You know, they're both metaphors, the face and then the countenance is the expression of that face. But he went into that a little bit. And let, you know, Lord, let me see your glory, as Moses requested. So, but yeah, it is, it's, a, it's a fun topic to, to look at. And we are all to be seekers of the Lord, are we not? Uh, and so one of the ways that we seek the Lord is when we gather together as a family in worship of Him. And that's exactly what we're headed to do. So this is part of seeking the Lord, is, is gathering together with our brothers and sisters to worship together. So let me pray for us in preparation for that. Our God in heaven, uh, we are uh, an, a people of injustice. Uh, we are a people of indifference. Uh, there are so many ways in which uh, we see ourselves more uh, of the wicked than the righteous. And yet you have been so gracious to us to redeem us, uh, capital R, to be our redeemer from our sin to save us from death, and to give us your righteousness. And so, by virtue of what you have done for us in Christ, we pray that we would be a people of justice, that we would be a people of righteousness. Help us to internalize what we've looked at through this study, and help us not to just push it away as something that is irrelevant, but let us to look at and examine our lives in light of Scripture by the power of Your Holy Spirit that we truly may be a people of wisdom and that we might live out our lives to Your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.